0: So often, when we communicate, we just communicate the step-by-step technical information, as one might read in a biomechanical textbook. We explain what should happen, like the steps I said earlier in building a Lego. But that's not how human motion comes about. And I know you've had many wonderful people on your podcast to talk about this. Right? Movement is about oneness. Right? We have a symphony of muscles and joints. That must come together in pursuit of one common goal, directed by a singular focus, just as a real symphony is directed by a singular conductor.
1: That was Nick Winkleman, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100-meter freestyle. And not only hearing that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So, I've been utilizing the airbands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. They've been a really cool training tool and I would definitely recommend checking into airbands. SimplyFaster.com also has Be Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the show. Thanks for being here. One of the major shifts in my coaching career as well as my own personal training and movement practice, has been getting more into training on the, the art level of things, if we look at things from uh, the levels of art and science. And this has been particularly on the level of psychology, motor learning, how the athlete actually perceives the training session and how we go about instructing athletes in the course of the training session. I think so often uh, in training, we tend to look at sessions, training sessions, on the level of, well, what, what drills or hopefully constraints are we going to use? What sets and reps are we going to engage with? X's and O's and and just like this structural framework. And that's great. Those things are definitely an important part of the equation. But it's a little bit more rare to look at the session or a training session on the level of meaning and engagement and how did athletes direct their focus? And how did the the instructions that were given to athletes actually show up in the athlete's movement? And in the feedback that athletes gave the coach to ideally blend the science and the, or the framework and the art, the intuition, and the communicative process uh, with athletes together, I'm so excited to have Nick Winkleman back on the show. Nick is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. He was previously the director of education for EXOS. Nick is an internationally recognized speaker on human performance and coaching science, and he is also the author of the book, The Language of Coaching. Nick appeared previously on episode 193, where he went in a deep dive on cueing, internal and external cues, analogies, and what it takes to make cues more effective. On the show today, Nick will speak on principles of attentional focus and how factors such as motivation and novelty can direct an athlete's attentional focus in the course of a training session. Nick will be discussing cueing dynamics, not just on the level of internal and external cues, but also on the level of. Meaningfulness and embodiment to the athlete, and how we can move past just simply intellectualizing instructions, saying, Well, here's a series of drills and positions to hit, and but how we can move past that and improve our dialogue with the athletes to really maximize what they are getting out of the training session and how they are going through that process to improve their sport technique. Finally, Nick will give his take on how coaches can become better storytellers in this process of communicating instructions to athletes and some things that he's been doing in his own career and writing that has helped him with that. So this was a really cool show, and it's a really important part of that total coaching package, and I know you guys are going to love this one. Let's get on to it. Episode 294 with Nick Winkleman. Nick, it's awesome to have you back on the show, man. Something I was thinking about as I was putting together questions for this show is It's interesting. The podcasts that I do that are more, and I don't know if you call it the soft spaces, but like motor learning, communication, like it seems like for some reason that is not like compared to like the speed podcast, you know, like people don't tend to find, I feel like people don't tend to find or be drawn towards that side quite as much. And do you have any idea why, like, do you think that is? And, or like describe maybe your journey a little bit about how you found that part to be really important.
0: You know what, Joel? Firstly, thanks for having me back on. I really enjoyed our last chat and I'm certainly looking forward to this one. I was on a podcast a a while back and it was something that the individual said to me in one of his questions that actually pointed to this question that you're now asking around why so few people seem to explicitly target, as you say, the soft skills, where in our space might be, you know, communication, communication habits, how we approach motivation, interpersonal skills, so on and so forth. And I think in my own journey, an answer, at least part of an answer revealed itself in that when I was starting out at Athletes Performance back in 2006, it was, you're focusing on gaining the tools, right? The physical, hard, tangible tools to do what it is your industry asks of you. And so in our case, it it starts first principles, understanding the body. So you study physiology, biomechanics, and anatomy. You can physically see the visuals of the body in its real form, in your cadaver labs, in your books, right? It's quite literally tangible. Uh, From there, you say, okay, I understand the body. Now I need to figure out how to build the body. And so you start studying programming. You can see three by ten on the page. You can see ten by ten. You can see the physical uh, expression of the movement in picture or in video form or in live demonstration. And so now you build that tool. You understand the body and you know how to influence it through your programming. And if we're honest, Joel, that gets you pretty far, doesn't it? Yeah. In that, if I can understand. The physical form. I can use various assessments, which again are quite tangible, as are the physical tools I buy to do the assessments. I now know your KPIs, your your key performance indicators or inhibitors. And now I start to deploy a program. And in its very simplest sense, like reading a, a set of instructions from a Lego, you simply provide them with basic instructions. Hey, here's a bench press, here's how you set up, here's what you need to do. Go on with it. And since so much of learning and development is born out of doing something, right, of taking action, the program and the hard skills associated with programming lead you to tangible change, which once again can be measured and seen with now technology and the various other instrumentation we have. So you can forgive people, Joel, (laughs) if they think that's where it begins and ends. But I think over time, every coach who is attentive and self-aware to the journey inevitably starts to pick up on what my colleague, Phil Glasgow, calls a weak signal. And that they start to recognize, first with a very, very low intuition, and if they pay attention, inevitably it brightens, it strengthens, that hold on. Not everybody responds to programming in the same way. So, I might have to individualize. But by the same token, not everyone responds to the same cue or communication style or, hey, I get on really well with so and so, but not so well with this other individual. And so they start to recognize that there is something else out there that influences an outcome like a programming, but by itself, it's not the programming, but it's not tangible, it's invisible to us. We sense when it's gone well, we certainly sense when it hasn't gone well, but we don't necessarily know how to access the underpinning principles. It's not as simple as looking at a video of movement technique. It's not as simple as going into a cadaver lab and you know, looking at the erector spinae muscles. It's not that tangible. It's invisible to us. It's like electricity. We know when it's working and when it's not, but we can't necessarily access the underpinning electronics that lead to it and for me that's what these to use your term soft skills are that's what communication and interpersonal engagement is it's remarkably powerful it is the energy source of every relationship and ultimately for me the rate limiting step in whether or not someone really achieves the end game of whatever their outcomes might be but without the proper set of lenses that allow you to see the habits, behaviors, and underpinning principles, it's very difficult to access. And so without that awareness, without that seeking to understand, uh, most people will get better at it or not by more chance than choice. And so individuals like myself and others and you with this platform are trying to, as I like to say, make the invisible visible.
1: Yeah, it's I think that I came into this, like the, more the soft skills element from, yeah, out of that, I think probably all of us, like we start with more of the, the, fr- the structural framework, the strength type standards and protocols and everything that goes in the typical package that goes into helping an athlete improve. And you see improvements, like you said, that stuff is certainly effective, but it's, I think after you're coached for a number of years, you start to see, well, why did this athlete improve so much and this athlete didn't? Why does this athlete just seem to get it and this athlete seems to struggle? And you start to notice the the fluctuations and how everyone improves a little bit or, or a lot. But then once you get to that certain threshold, the rest of the way oftentimes is you have to start... If you don't understand, I should say it, if you don't understand the softer side that you call it the, the yin, like all those nuances, you're going to leave a lot of potential behind. That's at least the way that I see it. But I also find it interesting if there's... Parts of people's personality makeup as well that would lead them more towards those those things than more I guess you could say the the more young or the more like you could call almost like data point type traits if that makes sense if there's a even a personality preference I guess why do some people get into sports science and why do some people get into dance right like maybe it's there's that too but I feel like it's impossible to cover that full spectrum of potential unless you are well aware of those soft space nuances
0: a hundred percent and. I think part of the challenge here is, is the level with which we try to understand soft skills and their purpose. I think very often we offer up strategies, whether it's how we understand another individual by looking at personality traits or, or archetypal uh, approaches. I think that can be helpful, but if you don't have the Underpinning level that sits beneath that in terms of what actually drives behavior and how how behavior ultimately guided by oneself can institute change. If you don't have access to that, it's very difficult to know how to utilize those tools in a meaningful way. And so, in my own experience, what are we trying to do? We are trying to get people to focus their attention on the right things. In the right way at the right time. Now, what do you think about that, Joel? In your experience, can we boil it down to that? Now, I'm not saying it's easy to do that, and we can discuss here in a moment how to go about that, but in its simplest form, when it comes to coaching and communication, can we not boil it down to that? Attention placed at the right things in the right way at the right time. Is that not the primary purpose of communication and interacting with another if the purpose is influence?
1: Yeah, I would say absolutely. Yeah, I think you could say the same thing with just mechanical exercises as well, right? We talk about the art of coaching being an art form in a sense of, well, I know the right exercises for the right tweaks to make this day. And I think we tend to think of it exactly. that way. I don't think we tend to think of it as often. What's that right thing to say to that athlete in this situation? Exactly. And I, I, looking back, I had so many of those moments as an athlete that I took for granted until I started learning all this stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that thing that coach said to me there, that was so like, that was such perfect timing, you know, like, um, so anyways, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And, and more ways than one.
0: hundred percent. So, so we start there, we start there very simply. We say, you know, and again, you go back to the Stoics, you know, we are what we pay attention to, you know, do not tell me your philosophy, embody it. Right? These all point to this thing that, that we are what we pay attention to. And thus, as a coach, we are trying to direct this attention. And we recognize the challenge because attention's like a spotlight. It's like a flashlight. It, it's fict- fixed in size, right? And while we can get better at focusing our attention for extended periods through mindfulness and other mindfulness-based practices, we can't actually increase the size of the spotlight. And so we know that if we want to change, we have to change what we point the spotlight towards. And when it comes to learning movement, as you said, it's two parts. It's making sure we select the right exercise for the mechanical change we seek, but it's also empowering them with the right lens, the right focus with which to bring that technical change to life. And again, that points to attention. And so then we say, okay, at a principal level, we get it, attention. And I like to say attention is a currency. Of learning, I've yet to meet anyone from practice to researcher who doesn't agree with that statement. We then ask the question: Well, what drives attention? What's going to drive people's uh, desire to pay attention? Now, at, at a principal level, it's survival. A- attention will switch to the stimulus in the environment that is most likely to inform me about my survival odds, and so this is. Right from an evolutionary perspective, very advantageous. You hear a rustling in the bush, your attention goes away from the fireside chat. You focus, your first reaction is not to approach, it's to retreat. Then you assess, and then you might approach because it might not be a lion, maybe it's some other animal that you could now kill and use over that fire as you continue your chat. So, attention first and foremost lends to make sure we take in the right thing. But fortunately, now survival isn't really in high demand when it comes to attentional taxation. And so that means when I'm not trying to survive, my attention is free to float. And so what does our attention float to? Our attention floats to things that stand out, that are novel, that are interesting, or that we are motivated by. And so this is where I like to say, generally speaking, if attention is the battery for learning motivation is the battery for attention. And so ultimately then great coaches need to figure out how to one direct attention correctly which you and I can talk about and we have talked about it. We can talk theory and outline a very simple model of the underpinning characteristics of how to direct attention when people move such that they move better. But there's a challenge inherent to that in that the way I deliver The cue, the way I come up with the cue, if it doesn't resonate with you, if it's not interesting to you, if it doesn't capture the why and the what for you, or any other number of personal preferences and characteristics unique to you, it doesn't matter how well formulated the cue is, it's not going to land. And so cues need to be both accurate and interesting, Joel. Accurate and interesting. An accurate and interesting point to Respecting attention and the motivation that powers it. And in my opinion, what we're talking about is is seedlings of communication here. We're talking about bedrock characteristics of communication. And that if I constantly pursue to direct your attention in a manner that is bound to your experience, your preference, you as an individual, I will ultimately communicate with you and engage with you as if I know your, your color. On the personality scheme, as if I know your archetypal background in that moment. We get to the same outcome, but in my opinion, with less risk of deviation.
1: I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shilajit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. So with drawing, I like, by the way, how you said that motivation being that baseline of the battle for attention. I think so often we see a room or a track or a field before a drill is done and i think this may happen more in a a gym like weight room setting than one's actual sport and maybe this is a good place to start i think is and i don't mean to make this conversation like weight room strength and conditioning specific i i look at this stuff as all all sports all ideas but i think the weight room is interesting because i think a lot of times and rachel belkovic when she was on highlighted this she said when she was a the strength coach she she was then a hitting coach i believe she's now a manager now which is uh, on her journey is awesome um But she had said when she was the hitting coach, it was so much easier to get athletes to pay attention and be excited and motivated than when she was the strength coach. It's like... Absolutely. And just basically for exactly what you said, like they see, they just, that just lights them up so much. I mean, and just by nature of what it is. And I think that a lot of times in the gym, in in a weight room setting, the strength coach can have a motivational battle because sometimes those athletes are interested they want to they want to get stronger and they see that as an avenue to improve their sport but a lot don't <laughs> and then it's like no matter what you're saying from a cue perspective on any movement or whatever you're doing if that motivation isn't there as far as my experience goes it's just not it's just not that effective like that motivation being the cornerstone in in context of like finding the thing that lights the athlete up And it's not an easy answer i guess with the weight room right like how do i how do I motivate you to understand this is going to help you be better? I mean, it's, it's a fundamental question, but I just yeah. think that motivation as the cornerstone is so underlooked and is so like, that is just it as that cornerstone for sure.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, motivation can be, it really is a simple idea in principle. It's not simple in practice, but in principle, it's your reason or reasons for doing something, right? For actively engaging, which is to say, pay attention to something. And so as long as you can get that why and the what, you can get those reasons in the direction of travel of their outcome and their goal, then you're you're likely going to be scaffolding motivation. But I think we have to be pragmatic, Joel. And that is not everyone's going to have, as you say there, the motivation in the weight room that they do in play in the sport. We know this. Strength coaches are uniquely attuned to this fact. So if we can't always get what I might call authentic motivation or truly intrinsic motivation for what we're asking them to do on the physical development side, we still have a responsibility to get them to do the work and do it in a high quality way that ultimately underpins the thing they actually love, which is the sport. And so that's where we can start to recognize that even though motivation powers attention in the long term, in the short term, we know that novelty, things that mm-hmm. are kind of salient, things that stand out, that are unique, they're very good at grabbing attention. And so even though I might have my rolled oats in the morning for sustainable energy, that's kind of more like motivation driving my attention. I also know that if I'm in mad need of sugar, calories, and carbs in the moment, I can grab a Snickers as the commercial tells us. And so sometimes we have to use more of a Snickers approach when it comes to coaching in the gym, recognizing that it's okay that motivation is not equally distributed across everything this person needs to do in their athletic journey. And that's where, once again, understanding how to have diversity and bring about intrigue in your communication such that they become attracted to what you're saying, not because they're attracted to the movement, but because it's making the movement easier. And so what I'm trying to do in that case is make you motivated by the learning, not what you're learning. I think to the individual, Joel, you rarely find someone that doesn't enjoy the experience of solving a problem, that doesn't enjoy the experience of something becoming easier. And I think for many Mm -hmm. athletes, the act of learning all these other physical skills that don't look like their sport to make them better at their sport can be challenging, especially if the learning does not feel seamless with high levels of, let's say, learning fluency. And so a lot of what we can do in this communication space is learn how to communicate in a way that makes learning and understanding unavoidably obvious to them, such that they enjoy being coached by you. They enjoy the fact that every time you offer or work with them to offer up some new insight, some new lens with which to focus and address the skill, they find themselves getting better. And they become motivated by the process of improvement as much, if not more than what they're improving. And, and I, it's, that's nuanced, but I think it's important with what we're talking about here.
1: Yeah. I love that. There's almost two prongs that shoot out from that for me. There's one, the, the training of, of Jay Schrader or that methodology has always fascinated me because it's extremely, it's like very simple. There's not a ton of exercise selection or change or novelty, or even learning on some level to my knowledge. The movements are very simple, like body weight holds, long body weight holds. It's very difficult. And that system is not for everybody. Someone who is not extremely intrinsically motivated or at least has a high level to be good, to really want to be good, I don't think will we'll work out very long in that system. And Tommy John, who's been on this podcast, who has taken a lot from that type of methodology, the first question he asks athletes is, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And if you're going to have that system that is very demanding but also really rewarding, you have to have a high level of motivation, but on the opposing end, I when I was at Cal, my experience with men's tennis, and I think tennis is one of those examples of sports where you, you get different, like like throwers in track and field love the weight room. Football players, for the most, I never work with football directly, but my understanding would be would be they probably like the weight room quite a bit for the most part. But <laughs> tennis does not naturally love the weight room for it's not they, they love playing their sport. I would watch them in the gym and especially my first year, like I'm coming in, I'm trying to be the tough guy strength coach and we're going to do all the movement prep and you got to do it on the dot and, and lifts are on tempo and all this stuff. And it's not like those aren't bad things, but there was just so many sour faces, like they just were not motivated to be there. They weren't motivated to, like, it just was not exciting to them. And yeah. I would not have won with them if I just said, all right, like, or taken a, a very simple just you know put your nose down and grind and do this approach. What it took for them to win over the years was like you were saying, okay, maybe you guys don't love the weight room. And actually some of the athletes as I went on changed, like were a little different. My first year was a little different than my my last year in terms of those athletes and what they felt with the gym. But all I'm gonna say is I, I traded like the movement prep for novelty. We would warm up with game like novel games, novel versions of keep away mild forms of maybe like roughhousing type stuff like what Rafe kelly does like or play volleyball or something and they were electrified and then we go and lift and it was like they were so amped up for that it was like so anyways it just made me think about that is by just kind of trading out some um (laughs) more traditional stuff Versus something that's more dynamic and novel. And the games, we would do different ones all the time and stuff like that. Or, or just play a game that wasn't their sport. They loved the novelty. And that really lit up that motivational underpinning of the session. So I never thought about it that way, like the intrinsic versus you could also use that leverage novelty in a situation where you need it. I just think that's really cool.
0: It's the Snickers. You know, you know the no- novelty is nature Snickers. It's the <laughs> way it grabs your attention. Because you have to check is this safe? That's where it comes from. And utilizing that selectively, so using different games, adding in competition, right? And there's going to be a natural competitive. So that competition taps into their intrinsic motivation. But then if you do that through a novel means, you, you double down almost. Now you have two real strong anchor points for them to pay attention. And then there's the social side of things, wanting to be the best, uh, especially in a competitive environment. And so you're creating a rich crucible for their attention to be focused and now primed going into that session. And I think, Joel, there's a bit of reciprocity here, isn't there? That when you give an athlete something that they want, they know that the coach is, is adding a bit of fun. They're breaking the mold of the Stern Strength Conditioning Coach, and they're doing it in a manner that, that so to speak, aligns with this individual's preferences, likes, and desires. I think some of that reciprocity is paid back, and that hey, coach, you're looking after us; we'll look after you and listen a bit better. And I think I've definitely seen that in my own experience.
1: When you mentioned survival, Nick, I, that actually instantly made me think of a strategy that can be used in strength coaching. You know, c- look comparable to like boot camp, right? Like yep. if you don't do this, and making that on a level of almost like survival for the individual yep. as a may, as a means to gain attention, because <laughs> you could get it for sure, but. Is that the best long-term way to gain attention versus like you said, like there's a level of autonomy and, and reciprocity and being seen on the level of the athlete as well. I, I think it all does live on a little bit of a spectrum or, you know, better, maybe there's certain um, situations that I'd I, I actually be curious with your take on that spectrum of things and how coaches will gain attention in the culture.
0: Yeah, I I think there's, right, there's, there's many different kinds of candy in the candy aisle, Joel. So there's a, there's a lot of things we can do. In the short term, e- even which I do not condone, the use of various forms of punishment are all a way of, of novelty and trying to signal attention to be paid in the right way. And so, on that continuum, there's some things that that are definitely unsavory, and let's say now are, are more than likely should not be cards that are played. But all of it comes down to this this novelty piece. But as you said yourself, it's not sustainable. It's not the rolled oats. It's not the slow burning form of motivation that keeps them coming back on their own again and again and Mm -hmm. again. And to bring that back to communication and the soft skills, I think this is where, you know, if I step back, when I started studying cueing and instruction and feedback, a lot of it was from the the vantage point of the coach, very monologue-oriented. Hey, this is what we should say. And the athlete was more like the canvas that we were painting on but then over time i realized that well no hold on you know the athlete is the painter ultimately they're the one that has to understand the coaching cue has to resonate with it and needs to be able to embody it such that it makes a change that both you recognize as a coach but most importantly they recognize as an athlete and so over time i found more and more of my language converting into a open question or a choice, choice-based question format that is based principally on my ability to listen to them deeply and what I see from them through the curated lens of how it can be used to make them better. So, for example, listening. The, the most Important thing I feel when it comes to developing soft skills is being able to anchor those soft skills to something meaningful to the athlete. And to make it meaningful to the athlete, you need to know what is meaningful to them. And so this is where we always talk about getting to know the athlete. And so for me, that's central. And just, you know, in my mind, that's hey, what are your likes, your dislikes, your preferences, your experiences in life? And it's not like we want to sit down and and interview them, even though we might do that up front, but it's just drip fed over time where we're trying to get to know them. And Joel, the way I like to think about that is that's us going to the quarry every day. And when you go down to the quarry, we're trying to mine them for memories, experiences, preferences, but also more specifically, listening for how they describe those memories, experiences, do they use what phrases? Is what pop culture references do they use? And just becoming aware of those things and collectively creates the gems, the nuggets of communication, of sound bites. We can then mirror back, we can then offer back to them when it comes to coaching, engagement, and even talking about motivation more from an interpersonal perspective. So, the simplest example of that is this. Let's say I'm coaching you, Joel, and something we both love, sprinting. And we, and you're not getting enough push. I might say to you, hey, Joel, on this next rep, you know, we really want to focus on exploding off the ground. Really want to focus on exploding off the ground. I might give you one of the following questions. You know, what does that mean to you? Or how does that cue make you feel? Or put that into your own words, if you'd like. And so let's say I use the the latter one. Hey, Joel, put that into your own words. And you say, well, you you want me to to be explosive when I push. And it's the same structure. It's the same meaning, but you've offered up just a slightly different phrasing of it. And I might say, exactly. I want you to be every single time you push off the ground, right? And that allows me to start to access, as I call it, your language locker. It allows us to start to connect. But here's the beautiful thing. I've now given you choice. I've given you curated input. And ultimately, we tend to invest, here's the punchline, more attention in the things that we are part of creating. We tend to invest more attention and intention in the decisions that come from ourselves, especially when we voice them to other individuals in a social context. And there's hardwired research and evidence, let alone experience, pointing to this. And if you then extend this strategy out, of which there's other ways to use questions, to unpack, to get to a common source of shared meaning, ultimately, all that athlete is sensing is every time I'm in the shared space of my coach, I feel seen, heard, and I get better. And who the heck doesn't want to be in that environment?
1: Yeah. One thing I think about, and this is me thinking about a little bit more surface level things that I'm not. I and one of the questions I actually have for you is like other there's processes of developing. and I I like you said though too, like just mining athletes on a regular basis to help understand what are they into, what are they, how do they perceive your cues, and I and that also makes me think of in um I'm trying to remember the the name of the book by Kurt Hester. I think it's like ravings of a strength and conditioning madman, but he had like a questionnaire that he gives out to all the athletes at the beginning of the year. And it's like, I, I believe it had questions like that. Like, who's your favorite, like artist, like who's it wanted to know them per like they would fill that out and, and feel like, wow, that I'm being seen. Like the coach wants to know more about me personally. And so that got me thinking about that. I remember when I read that book, I was like, man, I'm not good at that. Like I'm, I'm very, it's like, you know, you have this position coaching. Like, oh, I'm the authority, and you should just listen to me because I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's like no, like I mean, on a level, sure, but, uh, but you have to have confidence. But on the, on the other side, unless you are making the individuals you're working with feel seen and they are an active part of the process, you're never going to get. And I, I think about this too with the soft that you call it the soft skills. And you said it, it's, and so I'm like going all over the place. I'm sorry like this no. is what makes it sustainable. Like you can get great results taking a very young, very like hard lined, just, just, just structural approach to things without really getting into the nuances. And I think people can get good results for periods of time with that, Yes, they can. but yes. to make it sustainable and to optimize the experience of the athlete where they're, they're looking back on that. And they remember, they're remembering not just like, oh yeah, I got this great result, but oh, this experience with the coach, this was so awesome. You know what I'm saying? Like that's just what makes it amazing, I, and I think and again I'm always trying to put it in my head. How do I show that this is really important? You know, and and it's I think the sustainability is is a word that to me if you, you know if you're asking me that question, I feel like that's the word that I yeah come up with. I just went totally off the rails. I actually kind of forgot what I was going to say. I just the the questionnaire that Kurt put out is amazing. The and I don't know like I um and then yeah what you were saying like the questions to ask the athlete. I'll have to go back and and write those down. But I just think that like, yeah, that ability to gather that information and make the athlete feel seen and a part of it. I do remember my next question, but I'll let you, I won't keep going. Um, Yeah, that's just so massive. I I just think that's really important.
0: Well, and I think, and you're discussing forms of knowledge. And again, rightly or wrongly, I am fascinated by trying to get to these bedrock principles. The principles that if you understand, allow you to build so much more complex behavior in others and in yourself, and so what 's interesting is you're pointing to something here that I feel is is fundamental to recognizing why soft skills are important, but so often they're not and We, we started off this talk giving some very practical insight into why that is right they 're less tangible they 're difficult to grasp, and as you said, Joel, you can get pretty far just on the structural stuff mm-hmm. and so you know you might not know that there's uh, a, a bit more gold on the other side of that that wall, right? So you stop digging, you think you've gotten deep enough, but sometimes a few more cracks right of, of the hammer of the shovel, and you unlock something, and that's what we're trying to do with this conversation and others like it. But here's where it comes down for me: Perennial challenge in coaching. and I think every single coach, especially once they work with people at a higher level, they get to this reality. and that is the athlete saying. I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. I mean, Joel, in my opinion, that right there is one of the most revealing statements, phrases an athlete can offer. And ultimately, what, is, what it is directly pointing towards is a gap in understanding and thus a gap in our ability to communicate to support that understanding. And so what they're telling us is, coach, I know what to do. Like you, coach, I can watch it on a video. I can tell you where my technique is failing. Right? I even know the programming I need to do. I'm on it. I even know what I need to eat, recovery. I'm on it. I know what, I know what, I know what. But when it comes to swinging that baseball bat, pitching that ball, sprinting down the track, I just can't do it. I can tell, but I cannot show. And so ultimately, our athletes are assessed in their ability to show, their ability to demonstrate, not their ability to describe. And here now I'm talking about skill, expression, movement, and technique. So often when we communicate, we just communicate the step-by-step technical information as one might read in a biomechanical textbook. We explain what should happen, like the steps I said earlier, in building a Lego. But that's not how human motion comes about. And I know you've had many wonderful people on your podcast to talk about this, right? Movement is about oneness, right? We have a symphony of muscles and joints that must come together in pursuit of one common goal directed by a singular focus, just as a real symphony is directed by a singular conductor. And so ultimately, this is where the athlete is the keeper of the how inside them is hiding an idea, a lens that, if they can finally peer through it, will unlock this movement pattern, assuming there are no physical handbrakes. It is our job to help and guide the athlete towards that realization. And it's going to have to come in the form of experience, memories, and preferences wrapped in language that resonates with them. That they can access and ultimately that they can see and feel. Because if the language we offer is only ever intellectual, propositional, as we talked about earlier, they can't bring it into the physical body. I don't wanna know what you think about my cue. I wanna know how it makes you feel. Do you have an unavoidable ability to access the movement change upon receiving and hearing this analogy, this external cue? And so this is where I think we have the opportunity to point to something real that every coach experiences. I know what to do. I don't know how to do it. If they want to solve the how problem, then they have to look at the soft skills and how we inevitably translate what needs to change into a common currency that the motor system, which is nonverbal, can bring to life.
1: Yeah. Some of the biggest hangups I've seen are athletes who, and this is with coaches who did cue from a very like analogy sensory type situation. They wanted the athletes to feel, which I think is actually pretty rare. (laughs) Um, But there was a lot of athletes in those situations or some, I should say. And this is back at Cal where there's a lot of really intelligent, like it's a very academic school and you get athletes who are very, their style, like they have grown up in an intellectual style. They've grown up being coached and cued just you know, just like put your arm here, put your leg here, you know, like it's like this, you're reading a manual to a machine or something, you know? And so I guess, you know, and I would say anyone who uh, is kind of jumping in this conversation, hasn't listened to the last podcast, listen to the last one that that uh, Nick and I put together with the internal external cues and analogies. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit here too. But like, maybe I'll I'll, I'll just jump, I'll kind of piggyback off this and sorry my for my kind of adhd a little bit style here but it's bringing oh, so cool. things together cool. so we have that you know, that over intellectual athlete just wants to know the position the the machine manual versus being able to feel and like you said the body is one it's this integrated system that's much more than just one position it's this complex timing and and so what is it about the way that i guess like cues work and don't work that can teach us more about how we learn and function as humans. So like an internal cue that doesn't work very well, like a position, put your limb here versus an analogy or something that feeds into greater parts of who we are. Could you explain how that can, I guess, fit with the, yeah, not over intellectualizing, how we can transcend just the the, the front of the, you know, the forebrain and trying to make things parts and put limbs here and do this into who we are and, and how we learn and function as humans.
0: Uh, this, is, this is such a good question, Joel. Such a good question. It Actually, in answering this, we have to traverse everything we've talked about so far, conceptually at least. So a couple things. As you said, if people haven't listened to the first podcast or if they're not familiar with the internal versus external cue distinction or, or the, the value of analogies in that same discussion, then we might be jumping ahead for some. And, and so they'll have to excuse us for, for that and go listen. But uh, assuming everyone's now done that or is familiar with the concepts, we know principally, and, and, a, and a meta-analysis just came out in December reinforcing this, that when you provide someone with an external cue, such as push the ground away in a sprint, versus an internal cue, such as you know, extend your knees or rapidly extend your hips, we know now without question, over 24 years, Joel, now, since the first study by Gabriel Wolf in 98, We know that an external cue results in better performance in the moment. The effect actually strengthens when you look at learning and retention long-term. There's greater transfer across skills with an external focus. And that this is independent of skill level, novice versus expert. It's independent of skill type. It's independent of gender. And it's independent of physical and mental ability. So we know without question, a first principle of motor learning is that when we are learning something, we are best to place our focus in an externally directed manner. An external cue like push the ground away creates oneness. It invites the entire body to achieve that outcome. And it doesn't tell the body how to do it. So it inherently allows flexibility. Interestingly enough, Rob Gray, who's done a lot of research in baseball, showed that external cues allow greater variability of swing path Than internal cues, and on top of that, with better outcomes. And so, okay, so an external cue prompts oneness and does so with the greatest level of motor system flexibility, which is exactly what we want. Sport requires adaptability moment to moment. And so, what we're we're operating on is this proposition, theoretical and, and intuitive, that external cues or analogies that facilitate an external cue, such as, I want you to hammer the ground as one would hammer a nail there's an analogy it's not actually happening your leg isn't actually transformed into a hammer but you act as if right so an analogy can also facilitate an external cue we know that that's better okay on the whole now at this level let's go back to what we talked about earlier we're directing attention aren't we we're directing attention and so here we're on good ground to say we're directing attention appropriately but what drives attention motivation beliefs Value, buy in. These are all underpinning characteristics that drive the motivation needed to point my attention at something. So, if I have to use your example uh, and to use your words, someone who's hyper intellectual, or put differently, someone who's been brought up with internal cues primarily, when they come into contact with an external cue or an analogy, Joel, that's a foreign body to them, that's a virus to them. And what is their initial instinct? It's to jerk back. They say, hold on, this is foreign, right? This goes back to fundamental evolutionary principles. This is new. This is novel. I don't lean in right away. I step back. I want to go back to what I'm used to. The devil I know is better than the devil I don't. So in this case, what we now start to recognize is, okay, they've been conditioned strictly under the knowledge of what to do. Under technical internal language, which is the province of propositional knowledge of what? Step by step Lego instruction manual. We recognize that we have to respect that. This is not an or, Joel, it's an and. So I don't wanna do away. And I definitely don't wanna disrespect. And so what I might say to them is, okay, we look at the video. What do you think we need to change? I'm, I'm not getting enough extension, right? That's their term. My hip, knee, and ankle, I need more extension. And then I'm gonna say, okay, what do you think you can focus on to get that? And they likely are going to repeat themselves. Well, I need to get better hip, knee, and ankle extension. And then I might ask a further question. I might have them do a couple reps like that, and then they come back. It's not better. I say, okay, do you think you can think about your hip, your knee, and your ankle all independently while you're running? They're likely to say no. If they don't, they might say, I think so. I'm like, okay, let me ask you a different question. If I was to take your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, put it in a blender, and then give it back to you in a cup could you tell me which of the three meals you like the most hopefully you get a bit of a laugh and you're definitely going to get a no like well, no I'm like well that's kind of the same thing if you try to think about too many things it all generalizes it all blends and you're not able to get that specific precise change so i have an idea of something you might be able to think about that could help you bring some oneness to that movement what do you think I'm like yeah okay so If we focus on really pushing the ground away, like we're trying to put a dent in the track, what do you think is going to have to happen? Ah, well, my hip, my knee, and my ankle are going to have to extend more. Exactly. So let's get up there and violently punish the ground with every step. Push, push, push. And so what I've now introduced here is I've introduced external language or or analogy, which goes from the part to the whole, the micro to the macro, puts a visual. It's like the conductor of the symphony of muscles and joints. Bringing the oneness back into play. And so, in doing so, I can scaffold or to use your word, Joel, I can help them transcend their commitment to internal language. I want to give one final anecdote because it's fresh off the press here. (laughs) Myself and some colleagues had an intuition based on evidence and experience that when given the option, people will default to external cues and analogies. But knowing that when you ask athletes, Who've been brought up in an internal coaching environment, what their preference is, it's internal all the way down. And so while we have a few more studies to fully flesh out this theory, where we are right now is as follows. We had 125 college age individuals, half athletes across a diversity of sports, half non athletes, half men, half women. We gave them 16 different movements across weight room, plyo, and movement skill in sport. We then gave them internal cues, external cues, and analogies. We showed them a video and we asked them a very precise question on each one based on the movement at hand, which of the following would allow you to lift the most weight, hit the ball the farthest, run the fastest, swim the fastest, so on and so forth. And the data came back clear as day. Over 80% of, an indi- of the individuals had a systematic bias towards external cues, meaning greater than 50% of the time, they selected the external cue as their preferred choice. Close to 10% had a systematic choice for analogies. So that means around 90% of the individuals were external or analogy based with the minority having a systematic preference for internal. And so what this reinforces is if given the choice, people recognize that when they go to grab the glass of water, they don't have to call upon shoulder, elbow, and wrist. They reach out, grab the water, quench their their thirst, job done. But yet we coach people as if they're automaton robots. And if they're conditioned to that too heavily, they'll think motivationally that that's the way to go. And so ultimately we need both. We need the what and the how, the internal and the external. And hopefully that story shows how we blend them together. But when dealing with a blank slate, we give minimal dose internal to explain what should happen. So we have common ways of discussing motion. But ultimately, the province of executing the movement should place the mind in an external analogical state, protecting the oneness.
1: Would you say that uh, you mentioned it there at the end a little bit? And this was one of the questions I had for you. But is there ever a place for an internal cue like that? Like where there just has to be a bridge drawn or something between the way the athlete thinks and what's going on? Or and I love the blender analogy too. Like I love those like analogies that can prelude to using analogies, right? Like, um, but is there a place for an internal cue in the process of coaching an athlete?
0: I, there, 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 has, there has to be, Joel. There, there has to be specific cases, notably, I would say at the individual level. And if Dan Path was on here, he would certainly agree with that. And he and I have gone back and forth on this because his experience and others would be that there is a time and a place for internal language. I don't think I could give a systematic description of when, because I don't think there is one. I think the vast majority of the time, it's an and play, hmm. or it's an external cue. I rarely see it just being internal. And so going back to our example with the, the intellectual sprinter, there's no issue in talking about the body. We have to be able to talk about the body. Hip, knee, and ankle, phenomenal. What I'm suggesting is we need to bring about another piece. We're missing a piece to the puzzle. And that's being able to phrase this and create a lens that allows them to tie all that technical detail together in one idea. You know, I I like to refer to that as the Trojan horse cue. All the little soldiers inside the Trojan horse, that's like all the technical information, all the micro that we want to get across. We have to figure out a way to do it where it respects the oneness. It's one idea. You don't wear two different prescription lenses on top of each other, do you, when you wear glasses? you wear one. So how do you get to that singular lens with which they peer at, through, and into the movement they're performing? Now, I think there's certain cases where, let's say with sprinting, it might be a matter of semantics in that if I'm trying to improve knee drive, I might say something like, hey, I want you to focus on driving your knees forward. Now, at first blush, people hear the word knees forward, nothing else follows. And they assume that that's an internal cue. And I think in fairness, and those strictly in this space, like a Gabrielle Wolf, who I love to death, she might call that an internal cue. But for me, I don't believe that has the same mechanism or negative impact as saying, hey, I want you to flex your hip. And here's the rationale. When I tell you to flex your hip, I deconstruct your movement down into one joint. And I use language that is very constraining, flex your hip. Whereas when I say drive your knee forward, we know that the hip must flex alongside of all the other system stability to allow that, 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 flexion to take place. But in that case, I'm treating your knee very much so like a dumbbell or a medicine ball or a kettlebell. And then I'm saying, take this lump of matter and project it toward this other, lump of matter. in this case, this line or down the track. I'm not actually citing how to do that by making reference to a joint motion, limb motion or muscle action. So I think many of the internal cues in my experience, Joel, that people come to have top of mind as the reference, as the counterpoint to what I'm talking about always end with external, always end with analogy. When we look at them, they are exceptions in that. Yes, they make reference to the body but the way in which they make reference to the body is not at the level of the joint limb or muscle, but rather using the body as an implement to create trajectory or triangulation of motion. So same thing, throw your arms back, throw your hands back. I'm not making any distinct comment about shoulder, elbow, or wrist. I'm treating your arms like a lump of mass, like a medicine ball, and giving a directional cue of where it needs to go to create counter rotation for effective running mechanics. So those are some examples where if you heard me coach, I use them, I end with them. They sound internal. I believe they act more like an external, but even then I'll usually layer on an analogy. The drive your knee forward turns into shattering glass. The drive in the arms back turns into hammering back. And so even then I add a touch of paint, right? To make sure I color it up, I visual it up, and make sure it has a bit more of an um, emotional tint in the way they process it. So that's my sense in how to answer that. I think any a, a higher quality answer would require us to get into specific examples. Yeah,
1: yeah I agree. I, I like that it's kind of like the if and. I'm trying to remember. I know Rafe Kelly, had you know, that was a thing they talked about a lot. It was like contact improv was like an, an if and or an and. I don't remember the exact thing, but it's not just one thing. And so what I'm trying to say with that is I I will use internal cues i guess you could say more as a notice tool and that's something i wanted to ask you too we probably don't have time for it for this show but like i'll tell an athlete try doing this and notice what happened i usually won't say do this this is the way to move you must move this way but more like do this thing and now notice what changed and i was curious too i I don't know how long we have to get into this but i know you have internal cues external cues and analogies i was curious where just noticing fits into that Helen Hall, is a running coach, just talked to that. She calls it the gift of notice, or like Timothy Galloway in the inner game of tennis, where you just notice something. Don't you don't try to put anything on it. You just say, just notice this thing. I'm just curious. I'm curious what your take is on that in the, the that that um, ecosystem of cueing or instruction.
0: Absolutely, Joel. So I have a whole section of my book on this, which is one one section that it's it's hidden at the end of <laughs> of chapter four or five, and this is one of the big. Misnomers when it comes to the internal queuing discussion. I won't call it a debate because it's really not a debate anymore. So, awareness or noticing, to use your word and Helen's word, which I love, requires that something has already happened. And I noticed <laughs> that when you were describing that to me, you made a point to say that, in that you're not asking them to actively, in a very prospective, feed forward mechanism, think about this actively. But rather use this as a lens with which to reflect and notice how something occurred. Now, because that noticing involves sensing, a sensory profile, physical body awareness, right? Even Feldenkrais gets oftentimes brought up or cited when we're when we're, we're navigating this question. For me, I use awareness language or what I might use here, notice vocabulary all the time. You know, did that feel heavy? Did that feel light? Did you feel tall? Did you feel short? Did you feel tight? Did you feel loose? Was it easy? Was it hard? And I may even spotlight that towards a joint at ground contact, at the hips, entire body, just at the trunk. And like you, sometimes I give the question prospectively, and then I say, hey, I just want you to notice this while you're moving. More often than not, I'll ask it in a debrief after the fact. But it's still going to have a residue of, of impact on subsequent reps. And so in this case, I believe it's an area that we need to study. I do think it is absolutely a legitimate form of cueing or self-cueing, a very unconstrained, holistic, whole-body approach. I think it taps into more of the energetics and sense of movement rather than the mechanics itself, even though you can't parse those uh, away from each other. But I fundamentally know, or at least I believe I know this, it is not the same as proactively reducing the body to a joint limb or muscle and asking them to center the entire movement, which is multi-joint around that one aspect of the body. Those are categorically not the same thing. And this is what I mean when not all references to the body act like an internal cue as we've defined and demonstrated it in the research. And so in a very long-winded, preachy way, Joel, I think that awareness, noticing is critical. I think it helps walk people to find the signal of change that they weren't accessing before. I also think that it is very invitational such that they have to accept the invitation. And by its very nature, they have to be almost more actively involved in the process, even more so than just a queue, because they have to mine themselves for that sensory data to come back. And I think it's a beautiful way to facilitate change. And it's a part of a full menu of queuing strategies I would use, and I think others should as well.
1: Yeah, I love that. I I could ask you so many more questions about that, but maybe I'll have to save it for an email or something or the next time you're on. Just a little lightning question in closing, is, yeah. as I know you got to get going. Is I think about things we do outside of coaching that can influence our our ability in coaching. And I think you're in you know music. You're um, I think you're electronic music, and um, you're writing a fiction version of your book, which is amazing. Is there any other like storytelling practices that coaches you would say coaches could do outside of coaching that you think could help them paint better pictures with their words when they're actually coaching?
0: You know, it's um, it's it's a great it's a great question. I mean, you, you kind of named it there. I've I've gotten into trying to fictionalize a lot of my nonfiction work. You know, my my chapter in High Performance Training in, in, in David Joyce's Second Edition. I don't know if people know that's a fictional chapter. Nice, and I didn't. I didn't tell them I was going to write that, (laughs) and it was kind of one of those things where I was going to apologize after the fact, and I did. And you know, they had to battle for it, but it's. uh, I think it's a unique chapter, and for me, it was just such a better way to convey the story of of coaching and coaching language because I could write it from the reader's perspective, and that the reader is like Sarah going through the journey of learning how to coach. And so she's going to have the same questions. In fact, Joel, she asked in that chapter, many of the questions you asked me today. And we go ahead and answer that through dialogue, right? Rather than just strict theoretical propositions. And that's why I felt so compelled to write now a, a new book that is basically, as, as you said there, the language of coaching fictionalized to uh, believe it or not, an 800, 900 common era Viking setting. It will look, it it is going to come out of left field for people, but hidden inside of it will be every principle within the language of coaching. And so, in fact, I think in taking a fictional form to my work, I'm actually embodying at the deepest level what I'm trying to teach coaches. And that is, and this is certainly not my idea, humans think in narrative. We are storytellers, both prospectively and retrospectively. And we learn far better through fiction, even when it's nonfiction. And so, yeah, have have a crack at thinking about things in this way but it's my current medium. And, and so I guess that's the answer to your question.
1: Yeah. I need to get on more on my fiction. I just, it's like pure nonfiction is all I read. And honestly, I, the painting, the pictures is I, I default to noticing and, and, and uh, constraints. <laughs> I, yes. I, and I think as I get better at painting pictures with my words, I think fictional reading will be really helpful there. So that's such a cool story. I know you got to go. Thanks so much, Nick. I really appreciate having you on again. I got a million other questions, but maybe some other time.
0: Joel, you're so, you're so thoughtful in the way you go about your, your business here. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you guys next week.